Welcome to Taft Talks, a podcast from The Modern Law Firm. In this ongoing series, Taft Talks Probate, Top 100 Minnesota Lawyer and Minneapolis Private Client Partner, Bob McLeod, discusses hot topics and timely information surrounding private client litigation for trusts, wills, guardianships and censorships, and more. Hello, everyone. I'm Bob McLeod, and on today's episode of Taft Talks Probate, we're going to discuss the elective share under Minnesota statutes. So let's get right into it. This is a tough topic, so let's stay attentive. The elective share is a statutory tool in states that are called separate property states. What that means is in some states, you've probably heard of community property. Many states in the southwest of the United States have community property rules, wherein if two people are married, then everything they buy is owned half by one spouse and half by the other, regardless of how it's titled. Now, certainly there are nuances to that general rule throughout the states, but the general point is, during the marriage, one half of everything is owned by each spouse. But in a separate property state, that's not the rule. In a separate property state, if everything is titled in one spouse's name, then when that spouse dies, the surviving spouse is dependent upon the deceased spouse to devise property to them. Otherwise, they don't own anything. But that's where the elective share comes in. The elective share forces a decedent spouse to provide for their surviving spouse. And the surviving spouse does that by invoking the elective share statutes. Now, I can talk for about six days on the details of these statutes, but we're just going to try to cover some of the basics of the elective share. Now, for those of you who practice family law, you need to take the concept of marital property and separate property and throw it out. Those concepts mean absolutely nothing to the elective share for practical purposes. Very often when I'm working with people who practice in family law and I try to explain the elective share statutes, they keep bringing up, well, what about the separate property? What about if it was acquired during marriage? It's marital property. And I have to explain to them these statutes don't care about the family law characterization of assets being marital or separate. So that's off the table. Just ignore it. Whenever you want to raise that question to me, just take it and throw it out the window because it doesn't matter anymore in probate. Now, when you have a married couple and one of them dies, the first thing that happens is the surviving spouse is entitled to a certain minimum amount of property that is exempt of creditor claims. The surviving spouse gets a life estate in the house, and in some circumstances, they actually get the entire fee interest or complete title to the house, but that's beyond our discussion right now. If the decedent owned the house and all of the other property, then the surviving spouse is entitled to a life estate in the house, a certain minimum amount of tangible personal property, in Minnesota it's $15,000, one car of any value, and an allowance, a monthly allowance. It's 12 months if 
the estate is insolvent in 18 months if the estate is solvent. But they get an allowance. So before we even talk about the elective share, the surviving spouse gets a life estate in the house, and in some circumstances, they actually get the entire fee interest or complete title to the house, but that's beyond our discussion right now. All exempt of unsecured creditor claims. They get that off the top. So you take those assets, you take them off the top, you set them aside, it belongs to the surviving spouse, and put those assets out of your mind. And I say that because uh, very often people get confused and they try to include that in the elective share computations. It's off the table. It belongs to the spouse. And we'll talk about this in another podcast, but it's basically because the exempt property rights are founded in state constitutions in most cases, and arguably in some states they actually say those are non-probate assets. But that aside, take those assets off the table. Okay, so one spouse owns all the assets and dies. We've given the surviving spouse the exempt property rights. Next, we have the elective share. And if the elective share is going to be like community property states, then what the elective share does, it accumulates all of the assets owned by the surviving spouse and the deceased spouse. Now, again, this is often, very often where my family law colleagues and friends get very confused very quickly. And they start talking about separate property and marital property and acquired during the marriage. It's irrelevant to the elective share. The elective share, you just sit down with a piece of paper and a pencil and you add up all of the decedent's assets and all of the surviving spouse's assets. And when we talk about assets, we're talking about interests and trusts. We're talking about annuities. We're talking about assets titled in their name alone. We're talking about assets with beneficiary designations on it. We're talking about life insurance. We're talking about everything that both spouses own. Now, remember that the elective share is somewhat similar to the community property laws. The elective share is trying to give the surviving spouse a portion of the combined estates. And so you put together all the decedent's assets of all natures and forms and the surviving spouse's assets. Once you've combined them all, you take out the valid debts and liens and expenses against the estate, as you might imagine, and then we kind of have a net number. Then under an elective share statute, the surviving spouse gets a percentage of that overall combined estate after expenses. They get a percentage of that. Now, in many states, after 15 years of marriage, 1-5, after 15 years of marriage, the surviving spouse gets 50% of the estate. Now, those percentages and the years might vary from state to state. You know, in Minnesota, it starts at around 3% and goes up 3% for each year of marriage. But at 15 years of marriage, the surviving spouse gets to leave the marriage with 50% of the combined assets. Now, once you've determined the total amount that the surviving spouse is supposed to get from the augmented estate, the next problem is where are the assets paid from? This is not simple. I've written an article that I'm constantly modifying based on case law 
that I see from the different states. And this is a computation based on many statutes. In Minnesota, the probate code is in Chapter 524, and the exempt property rights are in 524.2-401-405. So 401, 402, 403, 404, and 5. That's the exempt property rights. And then the elective share is from 524.2-201 to 2-215. So there are 15 different statutes that you have to read together to figure out how to divide the estate. And again, that's about a six-hour discussion. So I'm going to cover it briefly. What the statutes generally try to do is pay the elective share from the assets the surviving spouse already has and from assets passing to the surviving spouse by beneficiary designation and by the probate administration. If there's not enough assets to pay the surviving spouse from those assets, then we have to start reaching into third-party beneficiary assets. For example, gifts made within two years of death, some of those assets might have to come back. Beneficiary designations on an IRA or life insurance or annuity, if those are going to third parties, those assets might have to come back. And as you might imagine, trying to reach out and grab assets from third parties is difficult. So the way the statutes work is they try to pay the surviving spouse's share of the augmented estate from the surviving spouse's assets and from probate assets or assets otherwise passing to the surviving spouse. So let's run through a couple examples. Let's say once again, we've got the uh, husband and wife classic scenario, you know, the leave it to beaver type family situation. And let's say husband had all the assets in his name. Let's say he had a million dollars of assets at the time of his death, and his wife, June Cleaver, has nothing. Well, if Ward Cleaver had left his estate to his brother, for example, well, then under the estate plan, his wife gets nothing. Well, first we learn the surviving spouse gets a life estate in the house, And in some circumstances, they actually get the entire fee interest or complete title to the house. But that's beyond our discussion right now. Surviving spouse gets $15,000 in personal property, one car of any value, and an allowance for up to 18 months. She gets that off the top. Next, from the assets that are left, let's say it's $1 million. Well, if they've been married 15 years or more, then the surviving spouse gets one half of the estate. Now, in the first example I gave you, everything was titled in the husband's name, and so we get to take the assets from the husband's estate and pay it to the surviving spouse. So she's entitled to $500,000. June Cleaver, in this case, is entitled to $500,000. Now, if the probate estate doesn't have $500,000 in it, then you get to start reaching out to the life insurance or other non-probate assets to pay for the $500,000. Certainly that gets difficult, but it is their right. But let's take a different example. Let's say each spouse has $500,000 to their name. So now Ward Cleaver dies, and after surviving spouse gets the exempt property, the total combined estates after debts is $1 million. But husband has $500,000 and wife has $500,000. 
in that case, in general, the way most of the statutes work is that making the elective share doesn't really help that much. Because when you get down to it, the surviving spouse is entitled to leave the marriage due to death with $500,000. But if the surviving spouse already has $500,000, then the election may not work very well. Because they're entitled to leave with $500,000, they have $500,000, so you're not entitled to much more. And if we take our similar situation, the first example, but flip it, Let's say June Cleaver has $1 million and her husband had zero. Now, if husband dies, it it again doesn't do her any favors by trying to take the elective share because under the elective share, she's entitled to $500,000. Well, she already has a million and his estate doesn't have anything to pay it. She already has the money. So once again, the elective share doesn't work. So the primary intended benefit of the elective share is for the surviving spouse to be able to leave the marriage with the percentage of the combined estates. And the elective share works best when the decedent spouse has the majority of assets. That means the statutes allow the surviving spouse to be able to leave the marriage with the minimum percentage of the estate based upon how long they have been married. Now, there's a great amount of nuance in understanding these statutes and working through these individual statutes, and we'll save that for another podcast. But to understand the general rule, the elective share is basically making separate property states similar to community property states so that a spouse can leave a marriage due to death with a minimum percentage of the estate. And in some states, it's after 15 years of marriage, they get 50%. Now, you might ask, what effect does a premarital agreement or antinuptial agreement or postnuptial agreement has on the elective share? Well, it's very simple. A spouse can waive the elective share rights. They can write down in an agreement that they agree they will not elect against the other spouse's estate plan. And that's why I started talking about how the elective share statutes prevent a decedent spouse from disinheriting the surviving spouse without their consent. If you sign an antinuptial agreement, a postnuptial agreement, and you deliberately waive your elective share rights or your exempt property rights, well, then you have done so in writing and with your consent, and you've potentially given up those rights. Again, there's some nuance in family law, nuance in probate law to interpret that and to apply that general principle. But the first general principle is you can waive these rights. And that's a big reason why you want to work with an attorney before getting married or before signing prenuptial agreements or postnuptial agreements or those types of agreements. And when family law attorney is working with the elective share statutes, whether to waive them or whether to make sure they are not waived. It's important to understand how these rules work, when they apply, how they apply, so they can be incorporated well into a premarital or postnuptial agreement. But again, we'll kind of talk those issues in a separate issue or podcast discussing the interplay between marital agreements and the probate statutes. So until next time, this is Bob McLeod. Thanks. 
Thank you for listening to Tap Talks. If you liked this episode, leave us a review and make sure to subscribe to stay up to date with The Modern Law Firm. This podcast provides general information related to the law. Taft Talks is not providing legal advice and does not establish an attorney-client relationship. The opinions expressed on Taft Talks belong to the individual attorneys on the program and do not necessarily reflect the firm's position. For questions and comments, please contact podcast at taftlaw.com. Additional information about Taft can be found at taftlaw.com. Thank you.